Hey, and welcome to another episode of Digital Noir Presents. I'm your host, Sam Davies. I've got Nicholas Bozic with me here today. Hi, Sam. Christopher William Mabs. Hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Yeah, really good, thanks. What's been happening, guys? Um, I've been home alone because my family's away. Ooh, that's sad. Do you miss them? Yes. Too. They've only been away a couple of days. Are you enjoying the freedom? Nah, it's been a week or so. Really? Yeah. Already? Yeah. To Thailand? Yeah. Wow, that's gone quickly. Yeah, so I'm just a big slob. I just don't clean up. And yeah, it was like fun there. You went to the movies, went rock climbing. Yeah. He was eating you did some stuff. Nutella and bread at about four o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> oh, jeez. Thanks for taking a downhill <laughs> Second turn. Second time you brought that up. <laughs> and then came in and said he's losing weight. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's a very small snack. Well, yeah, well, you can only eat it once a day and that's all you eat. Yeah, true. <laughs> exactly. So we've got another episode from Pause Fest this week. Yeah, exciting. We've got Leah Callum Butler from Intimate. Oh, finally. Uh, yeah, it took a little while. <laughs> yes. It took a minute. <laughs> we may have had three or four attempts at this chat. How many times yes. was it? At least, at least three times we attempted. But to. she's a she's a jet setter, right? So she's based yeah. in the Philippines, mm. and she's I think she was in Portugal one time. We tried to chat with her yeah, in London. Yeah, and so she had like terrible Wi-Fi, I think. So she had good excuses. We'll, we'll, we'll give her the benefit <laughs> of the doubt. Yeah, <laughs> it was actually a really really good chat. She's um so I saw her speak at Pause Fest two years ago. Mm-hmm. So um she's a co-founder and um one of the directors of a company called Intimate, which is a, mm-hmm. a token um for the adult industry mm-hmm. so block te- blockchain crypto, te- yeah. cryptocurrency yeah. yeah blockchain technology mm-hmm. and it's a really interesting use case for the technology and i think it actually makes a lot of sense the, the, her first talk was sort of the one of the first times I, I was like right this makes practical sense in the real world mm-hmm. so um we had a massive chat talking about all things from security to gdpr yeah. and, and yeah. crypto and mm-hmm. um yeah, a bunch of other bits and pieces in between. Oh, oh cool. I heard you bought something as well. I may have bought something. You bought some? Oh, no. <laughs> I wonder what it was. Yeah. <laughs> we can release the photos, maybe. <laughs> I'm actually, this podcast is going out um, with a, an interview um, for them that I did yesterday. So thanks again to Pause Fest for having us out. We had an awesome time, didn't we, Nick? Oh, yeah, for sure. A lot of interesting chats. Yeah, and we'll be releasing more of them over the next couple of weeks. So if you enjoy this chat, please tune back in. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be plenty more from Pause Fest. Nice. Let's jump in and have a chat with Leah. Boom. Yeah, that sounds good. I think um, we've been doing this dance for a while, actually. I'm excited. It has been a little bit of a dance. Fine. Well, it's totally my (laughs) fault. Totally my fault. But I'm very excited to finally be here. But you've been, I mean, it's been, so so last year I saw you talk um, here at Pause Fest. Oh, thank you for coming. It was very good. And I, I mean, what I found really interesting was... I think it was the first time that I'd seen a really clear and logical application of, of blockchain and crypto and I suppose the, um, like the transactional side of it, and the trust side of it um, sort of laid out. Um, I think a lot of people still are sort of mystified by what blockchain is and what crypto is. Just give me a quick rundown of, of Intimate and how, how it's using that technology. Well, I've got to admit, um, Intimate was not the first uh, practical use case that I came across for blockchain. Cool. Um, I actually got into the space because I have a background working in renewable energy. Okay. And uh, a mentor of mine, who's from Melbourne actually, um, he introduced me to a project called the Brooklyn Microgrid, okay. which was by Consensus, LO3 Energy and Transgrid. And it was the first time they ever traded energy peer-to-peer on the blockchain. Yeah, cool. I have heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. So this idea of um, you know neighbors being able to create their own solar energy mm. and sell it what sell it at whatever price they um, they stake it at to their neighbors 
it blew my mind because yeah. previously this was just completely impossible. Um, the energy, energy grid was controlled by the infrastructure providers and the power creators. Yep. Um, so it took me a long time to get my head around it, to be honest. I just, it kind of seemed too good to be true, like this magical technology that um, wasn't really real. Um, but when I started to understand it a bit more, I kind of got obsessed with this idea that, wow, you know, decentralization could completely transform the way we do business, mm. the way we live our lives, the way we trust each other, really. Um, because everything we do these days is reliant on trusted intermediaries to process transactions for us. Yep. You know, if I want to send money to you, I need a bank. If I want to buy a house, I need a mortgage broker. We've got all these people who sit in the middle. Anyway, obviously there were lots of people excited about blockchain. I felt like they were kind of applying it to anything and everything. Um, and I got obsessed with this idea that blockchain was such an early stage technology that it was kind of crying out for the perfect use case. And yep. obviously I loved the energy trading thing, but there are already very cool projects like Power Ledger in Australia. Yeah, Power Ledger is really interesting. Working on it. Yep. It's like, what else? There's got to be something else. And um, I come from a social impact background, okay. so I'm kind of always looking for projects that can not only be profitable um, and scalable, but really improve people's lives. Yep. And um, I happened to meet my co-founder, Ruben Copper, and uh, that was in like October 2017. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he actually introduced the first Bitcoin ATMs into Australia in 2014. Okay. And he'd also started um, an app called Rendezvous um, yeah. many years later, which was bringing safety and security to the escort industry because he'd noticed that there was a real problem with escorts being able to tee up with clients. Um, and it was mainly centered around payments. Yep. Like the whole industry was based on cash, cash yeah. because no one wants to give their credit card details to an escort mm. um, or put it into a dodgy porn site even. Um, so anyway, kind of long story short, I'm going off on a tangent, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, he kind of saw that crypto and adult had a lot of the same problems. They were both stigmatized. They both were struggling to kind of break into mainstream. Um, they both had issues with payments mm. and kind of ironically, they could solve each other's problems. I had no background in the adult industry, so I really knew nothing about it. But when I started to delve into that space, I saw that, you know, if you took the adult label off it, yeah. it was purely an industry that was struggling to access some of the most basic B2B and merchant services mm. in order to do basic efficient business because of moral guidelines. Yeah. And I was just like, that's bullshit. Like, we're talking legal tax paying legitimate entities that can't get PayPal to work with them or open a bank account. And I was like... What? Why is nobody clamoring to fix this problem? And I found that really interesting that you've got banks that, that there's there's no technical clause here saying we can't work with you. It's just based down to their essentially their moral viewpoint or you know whatever their worldview is. Well, yeah, some of them do actually have you know physical clause. Really? Yeah, um, it's a morali morality clause, yeah. and it applies to other sort of. We is that call a grey area though? Um, well, it's not really. I mean, people they lay down the line on it, and mm. it, it's not just us. It's not just adult. It's uh, cannabis, gambling, yep, sure. sometimes alcohol. Yep. Depends on the entities that own these businesses. Yeah. But it goes a little bit further than that too. So it's, it's not. A lot of people like to go, oh, you know, you're just archaic and stuck in the old ages. Nah. But there are problems in payments in the adult industry. For example, um, chargebacks. Yep. Um, so anyone who doesn't know what a chargeback is, it's like I've just bought some porn, but my husband's just seen it. He's like what is this thing on your credit card statement? Mm. And I'm like, oh my God, I would never buy that filthy, disgusting material. I'm going to call <laughs> the bank and have them reverse it immediately. Okay. Massive problem, yeah, chargeback okay. fraud. Sure. They call it friendly fraud because, um, you know, it's not necessarily criminals. It's people just with yeah. buyer's remorse. Yep. 
Um, but the interesting thing is, is that this is such a massive problem for adult merchants mm. because think about it. They already struggle with their relationships with payment processors and banks. Yeah, add that on top. So they have to go to these peripheral service providers who charge them exorbitant fees because they class them as high risk. And then if you get like, you know, 10 people complaining of a chargeback in a month, they Mm. go, wow, you're even more high risk. I'm going to up your interest rates again. So for the merchants, they, God, like if they were, if push came to shove, they'd be quite happy to just give the the client a refund. Yeah. They don't want them complaining to their payments and finance service providers. Sure. Yeah. So it's kind of, it is real and perceived, like chargebacks are a problem, but a cool thing about blockchain is because we're cutting out the trusted intermediary, you don't need a bank to facilitate the transaction suddenly chargebacks aren't a thing anymore. So, for example, (laughs) um, in crypto, it's a push transaction. I have to authorize it in order for it to happen. You can't just pull it out of my account upon your authorization like you would with a credit card. So suddenly, like, if I I buy some, whatever, I don't know, a book on Escort, or I buy a vibrator and suddenly someone finds me out and I really want a refund, I go directly to you. Yeah. You don't have to talk to that intermediary. Exactly. And if you if you want to give me that refund because it's like, oh, you know, you're a pretty good customer and we'll let you off this one time, then the choice is up to you. And I think that's where it becomes really important because we want to be able to empower our merchants to make their own decision yep. rather than being at the mercy of these financial providers. Yeah, sure. It's sort of held hostage in some situations. Yeah. Yeah. But like not in a cool BDSM way. No, not at all. <laughs> in a horrible old school banking way. So then, so that's the sort of transactional side of things. But then there's this whole other layer, I suppose, of, of, of trust and um, authenticity in terms of your, your, your personal credentials that, that comes into um, Intimate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, there's currently a massive trade-off in adult um, because most people want to be able to have some level of privacy yep. when they're accessing these, uh, these kind of products and services. A lot of people say to me, oh, you know, like, why are you trying to protect sleazy guys who are just getting sleazy products and they don't want their wife to know about it? Mm. You know, I think privacy is important to everyone for a whole range of different reasons and I support it in every instance. But you've also got to think, like, what if it's someone who is struggling with their sexual identity yeah, sure. and they want to buy their first gay toy or um, interact with the LGBTI community without having to have their parents at home known or everyone in the office? Or what if it's a young woman who... Um, What if it's a young woman who's grown up in a really religious conservative family and she wants to access advice about family planning or Mm. contraception or, you know, buy vibrators so she can explore her own body? I mean, people want privacy for lots of different reasons. And I think as um, as we sort of become more mature in this digital world around us, I think privacy is going to become bigger and bigger, whether or not it's in, you know, whether or not it's because you want to hide something or keep it discreet. I think we, I think that's just going to become more and more important to us as yeah. consumers. At the moment, I think humans. people think about it in, in the context of discretion or like, you know, if you want to keep something private, you've got something to hide. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's your data. That's right. You own it. No mm. one else. I mean, there's few things in the world. You wouldn't just freely put your bank account details out there. No. So why are you doing it with your medical health records or, you know, any other kind of data that you own? So, yeah, we think there's an opportunity here with blockchain to allow transparency and privacy to exist in parallel which is usually kind of like a whoa, mind-blown moment for most people. I know it was for me when I first started understanding about this. Um, But what we're interested in is this concept of pseudonymity, not anonymity, which is what a lot of people think about when they think about crypto and, you know, apply it to the black market and things like that. 
we're not about covering up your tracks. We want to bring this industry out of the shadows. Yep. But we do want people uh, to feel that they can keep certain personas in their life yep. separate. So if I'm going to you know, interact with the swingers community, mm -hmm. with my partner on the weekend or whatever, that I have the freedom to be able to do that and to be completely transparent with other people on the network yep. to share with them, say, a trust measure that I've built up over time. And, and that might be just feedback that I've received from other people who have mm. interacted with me. I, I'm very happy to share that kind of information within the community yep. because it's relevant to them. But it's not relevant to the people at work. It's not relevant to you know, my family or my flatmates or that guy down the road. <laughs> but I should be able to... Um, switch on and off certain attributes about my identity and my reputation mm. where and when it's relevant and I heard you talking yesterday about um, so we have all these services we use now which have a measure of our reputation on them so we've got Amazon and we've got Uber and we've got Airbnb and all, and all these uh, you know review ratings of us as, as humans you know in the transactional world mm. but there's no way to port them across through different mediums yeah like isn't that crazy so you know if I've been using Uber for four years mm. and I've got like a stellar 4.9 star rating yep. that says something about me it says Definitely. you know I'm not going to get in your Uber and projectile vomit all over you because I'm drunk um, I'm not going to try and shoot you I'm not going to try and rape you you know I'm a relatively good driver yeah. um, you know I you can trust me to get in your car with you. But if I'm going to go on my first Airbnb trip, I can't port that reputation over to Airbnb. No. Now, granted, they're not exactly the same instance, no. but, you know, the Airbnb host who knows nothing of me mm. has no checkpoint to be able to validate my reputation against anything else. Um, so I really feel that that's kind of a, a weird situation that we're in where we're, we're going to all the effort to pay money for these services and interact with people and build this trust measure, as I like to call it. Sure. Some people hate the word reputation. They kind of associate it with like Black Mirror or Chinese government stuff, which is fine, but I'm clearly not trying to yeah. build that sort of stuff. It's more about like, how do, how do I decide if I can actually trust someone? I don't care if they're popular or, or cool or pretty. I just want to know they're trustworthy. So I really believe that you should be able to um, port your trust measure across different products and services if you've uh, built it yourself. In a secure environment where that, so, so it's interesting that parallel between what's happening in China and in India, mm. I, believe, I believe, where sort of a nation state's trying to build, you know, trust measures or a rep, reputation measure on their yeah. civilian base, um, which becomes, you know, extremely scary in the wrong hands. Um, but then on the flip side, if, if you own that data, if, that, if, that's, if that's yours to willingly share where you want, then I think that's, that's a great thing. And that, and that does allow you to sort of move through the digital world and outside it, really. Um, you know, with the, I suppose, like you said, a certain level of uh, transparency, but also anonymity when you need it. Yeah, this is such an evolving conversation, mm. and I think it's kind of happening in different little pods of society. So I hear lots of different things. People are aware of the benefits of the reputation system embedded within Uber and Airbnb. Yeah. Like it wasn't that long ago that if I said to you, "I'm going to go jump in a stranger's car or stay in a stranger's house," be you'd crazy. be like, "What?" Yeah. No way. <laughs> but now we think nothing of it. I mean, stranger danger is a thing of the past yeah. because we can assess the trustworthiness of someone we've never met before. But then at the same time, we never hear people mention that it is a reputation system yeah. that is defining these things. And, and it is. Of course. But then we see these horror things about, you know, what we're seeing play out in China, what we've seen on Black Mirror. Yeah. Um, and I think people associate uh, these reputation algorithms with only being used against us. 
I think I, I actually encourage that. I think uh, in order to build ethical systems mm. that actually improve people's lives and not exploit them, we should be coming at it from a very uh, highly analytical and critical approach. Yeah, and pessimistic even, to an extent. Well, yeah, even a healthy level of skepticism yeah. um, about, you know, well, what could go wrong here? What are we designing? What is the future going to look like if we implement these systems? Yeah. But at the same time, I'm not seeing that with things like uh, the My Health opt-out in sure. Australia. <laughs> I, I saw so many people go, I don't know why I have to opt-out. Like, I think it's good if the government has my information. Mm. It's going to improve interoperability um, and it's going to improve my life and make it easier for me to get access to healthcare if I need it in an emergency situation. Yeah. And I'm like, that's fine. And I agree with all those benefits there, but perhaps the system that's been designed is not the right one. Yeah. We should be looking at how these systems are designed, how they benefit us, and is the data ultimately owned and controlled by us? That's my problem with the My Health scheme because 100%. it's not owned and by you. And the Australian you. government built it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 That's that's a key flag, red flag. Um, um, but we should be coming at it like for systems like that. We yeah. should be coming at it with that healthy level of skepticism. How could this be used for me? But how could it be used against me? And let's weigh up both sides. It's an education piece as well, and I think you know we've been thrust in the last ten years into this sort of you know smartphone and, and you know all of our data sort of you know, all our lives being spent you know online essentially. I think you know the, the public sort of consensus or, or consciousness better of understanding like what's happening with our data and where it's going. It's very very low, right? So you have something like Cambridge Analytica or a Facebook breach where people get a taste of it, and it's you know very skewed by the media and not really reported very well. I don't think so. So people have sort of a, as they do sort of this you know. A very black and white view of of their data and, and what's happening with it, but I think as you know, as digital citizens, we're going to need to get more savvy about what we're doing with our data, who's got it, where we where we're happy for it, you know, an organisation or a company or a nation state to have it, and where we're not, and actually what control we have. So the stuff that's happening in Europe is interesting. I think that's sort of a you know, GDPR is a step there, but it's yeah. still a, a long way to go. I think. Well, yeah, and you know, I'm actually really grateful. I mean, I'm not grateful for Cambridge Analytica. That no. was a terrible, terrible scandal. But I'm really grateful for the fact that people are thinking about this now. Like, yeah. you know, what does it mean to me? Prior to that stage, people were kind of like, oh, well, you know, if they've got my Facebook data, like, what do I really care? Yeah. Like, I don't have anything to hide. But little did they know that Cambridge Analytica could exploit the data of millions of users. Yeah in order to create psychographic profiles that would be able to to allow them to target people on Facebook mm. with ads and influence their behavior in the US presidential campaign. Mm. And, you know, that that's horrifying. That's Black Mirror stuff. It is. And, I mean, in Brexit, even more so. I mean, the stuff they did in the UK was, was intense. And it, I think it's... I mean, and the scary thing about it is, you know, apart from, I suppose, them potentially using Facebook's data against the terms it wasn't really it wasn't like they hacked stuff they, they were literally just coming in and you know using technology that's available freely available freely available you know and the, i think the, the i think the scary thing about that one mm. was that i mean particularly cambridge analytica was that it, i think it was only like 270,000 people yeah. who used the this is your life yeah, api yeah. but the what they didn't realize was that um, through that api they gave um, the people behind it the permission to access the data of their friends. friends yeah, that's right. And then when those that's concentric freaky. circles go out, it just gets it gets huge. Yeah, yeah. I was following. Um, I think it was early last year the story around um, back pages and, and pages yep. like that being shut down in the US. So for people that don't know, back pages <laughs> is kind of like a Gumtree or a Craigslist, um, but where a lot of sort of um, escort services were being uh, advertised globally. 
um, and through Congress in the US, it essentially got shut down. I think around child trafficking laws was the was the official reason for it. Yeah, so it happened around the um, the implementation of Foster Sesta, okay. uh, which were yeah, yeah, sure. it's laws in the US to just give everyone like a, a very quick rundown. Mm. Um, basically, what happened was uh, at the dawn of the internet, um, there was a particular clause within the Communications Decency Act in the US, Section Two Thirty which provided immunity to platforms that host user-generated content. Okay. So, you know, your Facebooks, your Reddits, your Craigslist, all of them, your back pages. Um, so if people put uh, stuff on that site that is illegal, mm. that it's not Facebook's problem. Because the people realize that you, you're going to stunt the growth of the internet. Yeah. If, if you cap it by um, making platforms responsible for what people do, they're clearly just going to go, well, that's impossible to comb through all that stuff. Yeah. We'll, we'll just prevent people from doing it. We'll, we'll block it. So um, Section 230 was meant to protect them so that the internet could um, experience exponential growth, and, and it did. But um, there is a problem, a huge problem with sex trafficking in the world. Sure. Um, What's, what's a bigger problem is that uh, there isn't really a thorough framework for the mainstream to kind of understand the difference between sex trafficking and uh, consensual sex work. Yeah. They're two very different things, but they often just get chucked in the same bucket. Yeah. Um, and in my opinion, what happened with Foster Sesta was um, there was a group who had been attacking Backpage for a long time because it was known uh, for advertising sex trafficked victims. Okay. Um, but they, they kept losing in court because of Section 230. Yep. They kind of changed their tact and tried to get Section 230 removed, and they were successful. Okay. So what we saw um, in the advent of that was this knee-jerk reaction from a whole bunch of platforms who went, whoa, oh my God, like the, the best risk management strategy for this yeah. is for us to just shut down, shut down and mm. delete any content that has anything to do with sex work because how are we ever going to comb through all of no. that data and content and go yep that's a consensual sex worker oh and that's a sex traffic victim it's impossible sure. so we saw forums on craigslist and reddit completely shut down people some people had their google drives deleted wow. without without warning wow. you know if they had naked pictures in there um websites were shut down yep um but backpage was also shut down I, I don't actually think that it was um, Backpage was a direct response to Foster Sester. Okay. It was kind of like a long thing that was going on. They mm. actually, I think they got them on something like tax evasion. Don't don't quote me on yeah, that. Sure. But, um, but yeah, it's it's a huge problem, and Backpage was kind of heralded as the one. In the fallout of this, what's mm. happened is that now um, consensual sex workers who are doing this profession by choice, and look, you know, some people absolutely love their job. Yeah. You know, uh, they absolutely love. Uh, being a sex worker and they make good money um, and very happy with what they do. Some people don't like their job, but everyone needs a job. Yeah, <laughs> so, lots of people don't like their job. Yeah, like somebody working at Woolies might not like their job, mm -hmm. but you know they should still be afforded rights and protection and empowerment yes. um, to feel safe when they go to work. Yeah. But uh, now, because nobody can advertise their services online, mm. it's it's kind of put the industry back, you know, more than a decade yeah. because. Now people, um, they can't safely 
uh, screen their clients online. Yep. And uh, yeah, it's basically put the industry back very, very far and put a lot of people um, in very unsafe positions, which is really scary. I read a report, so they're running a report, I think, in um, SF in San Francisco around um, since, since the sites have been shut down, since that law has come through, around increase in, in homicide and rape yeah. um, you know, amongst the community. And, it, and, it, and it's spiked. They can see a direct correlation between, you know, people being literally unsafe because the inability to screen and having yeah. to go back to the street and having to go back to you know pimps and, and you know, different ways of sort of getting your services out there if you don't have that direct means of controlling your own destiny yeah. that's really scary it is it's completely taking away any sense of empowerment that mm. sex workers once had um, they can't be independent they they fear for their lives they fear for being prosecuted um and i mean that that's in the US, but globally. Globally, no, Foster, this is, yeah. Yeah, Foster Sester has had ripple effects across the world. I mean, just to clarify, um, sex work is illegal in the US. Mm. But here um, in Australia, in New South Wales, it's decriminalized. Yep. Um, in the UK, it's decriminalized. But people are still um, having these same issues. And, yeah. you know, I just think it's, I find it very archaic mm. um, and very frightening because um, I've spent the last year doing primary research, working with sex workers around the world to understand, you know, well, what happens when you're going to see a new client? How do you decide whether they're trustworthy? Yeah. What do you do when something goes wrong? And you know, I don't know if people have this idea in their head that sex workers are like junkies on the street or something mm. like that, but there is probably the greatest spectrum of people within this industry that provide services yeah. and also access them probably more of a kaleidoscope than any other industry in the world. Um, and I've spent a lot of time, particularly in the UK, um, with sex workers who come from disadvantaged backgrounds okay. um, to understand how when we're building a trust measure, uh, how do we build one that's going to be completely inclusive of all types of workers? So, you know, a, a worker in New South Wales who charges three grand an hour um, uh, you know, the kind of trust measurement system that she's going to need is very different to say someone in over another side of the world yep. who has a mental health issue, perhaps a physical disablement, um, who is from a socioeconomically disadvantaged background, mm. who is of colour, who is trans, um, who is LGBTIQ. I mean, the list goes on. Yeah. So, you know, there's so many different people in this space and they're really struggling with scary issues and no one's standing up for them. So, so the real-world application then of, of, of internet would be, let's say for that sex worker in the UK, is to actually be able to have um, someone contact them via you know, a, a means of communication which is secure mm -hmm. and be able to screen them essentially. And that could go all the way through to health records if we wanted, um, yeah. uh, you know, transaction history within the community, even outside. Um, so you can actually get a pretty good view of who this, you know, who this character is. Um, what, do you, what do you call the, the entities? Do you call them characters or you oh, put a name to like... Um, Johns? Oh, like yeah, the people John. who, oh, are, yeah. who yeah. are accessing so, services? I mean, that's essentially <laughs> your, 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 you know, your digital character with a certain sense of anonymity there, but you also have building that layer of trust. And then the, the actual financial transaction can happen peer-to-peer -peer directly with no, with no intermediary. So I think the really important point here is we already talked about pseudonymity so that people can kind of keep their personas separate yeah. depending on what they're doing, but... I think the really important feature to, to build in is selective or voluntary disclosure. Yeah. 
So you might say within your pseudonym, you built up all of these attributes. So I can, you know, let's just say it's me. I, I've got this uh, profile that I've been building for a couple of years. I've interacted with all sorts of things. I've um, purchased time on a webcam platform with a mm -hmm. cam performer. I've booked escorts. I've purchased, um, say, uh, adult novelties. I've attended BDSM parties. Clearly, I have a great life. Um, <laughs> but uh, perhaps more importantly, I've also uh, verified certain attributes about my identity. Yep. So I've been to, say, a third-party oracle, let's say it's Australia Post, yep. and they've viewed my passport and said, yep, you are who you say you are. Mm. Now, that means that someone can see my pseudonym and not know who I am at home, yeah. but they know that it's a real person behind there. Trusted in there. Yeah. And I could do the same things with my sexual health medical records mm -hmm. to show that, um, you know, I get tested every three months and I've been doing that for the past two years. Now, all of that is my information um, that I've built up. Yeah. And if you and I are going to go on a date, you might want to see certain things about me. Definitely. Now, look, we've not even been on a first date yet, so mm. I'm not going to go like, Bleh, have all of my information <laughs> at my once. Whole health record, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. we've, we've got to build some trust first. Yeah. But in order to build that trust and establish it in the first place, mm. you know, you've got to give up something. At the moment, how do you do that? Like, you've got to go verify it against other um, pieces of information yeah. that give away my other personas. That's right. But how powerful is that? If I can show you, look, I've had my, my ID verified mm. by an oracle that you and I both trust. Yeah. I don't have to show you my ID. Mm. You might say, oh, well, I don't trust Australia Post. I want you to get it verified by Junio or something yeah, like that. Yeah, whatever it is, yeah. Whatever. Um, but then we have a very, very different type of negotiation, which is far safer. Yep. Um, and uh, I think uh, satisfies the needs of consumers and mm. service providers and even merchants yep. far better in order to respect our privacy, um, but allow us to have that sense of trust at the same time. Going back to what you were saying before, I suppose, about there being this, so with, with my health, you know, a, a lot of a lot of Aussies, I think a lot of people go, well, you know, that that data should be publicly available, uh, or not? You know, it should, it's no problem to be out there, right? And, and it's like that old age-old thing: if I'm not doing anything wrong, then it's fine to have you know information yeah. out there. But you know, as the world becomes more complex, and I think as kind of you know the world becomes smaller digitally, like the, there's certain thing I don't know what it is, but tomorrow something that we you know see as free and legal today might not be. Cannabis is a good example, right? We can see that being legalized across the world. Here, it's not, but. To, to be able to control those elements of your personality and, and your data as sort of, who knows what happens with governments and, you know, regulation around the world, it's going to become increasingly important, I think, to us. Well, our, our data is our data. Yeah. Um, I say stop giving it away freely, mm. protect your privacy. If nothing else, in the future, data could be the most valuable thing yeah. in the world to corporate. Yeah. So if you've given it away freely, you can't monetize it. So, so if nothing else... Make sure you don't give it away freely because people will pay for it soon. Well, and they already are. are. Already, yeah, they yeah. already are. Um, but then, you know, I don't mean to go all black mirror on you, but, yeah. you know, to give people... A, we live in a very trusting society. Yeah, like, we do. We don't really have a lot of reason to fear our government. Um, we believe in our political, judicial and financial systems. I'm currently living in the Philippines, which is at the absolute arse end of the transparency yeah, index sure. for corruption. <laughs> Um, and they, they don't live in a trusting society. So to put it back into Australia, I mean, to give people an idea about how your data could be used against you. Obviously, mm. I've talked about how we can use it for you. Yeah. But what if, for example, you were, a, a, you know, I'm thinking now about mixing blockchain with other technologies like mm. Internet of Things and artificial intelligence. But what if you're a day late on your rent payment yep. and you go to open your front door and your key doesn't work? 
Yeah. Because, you know, your landlord's locked you out. They've used Internet of Things technology to be able to lock you out until you, you yeah. pay your rent. What if you haven't paid your credit card bill and you're like, you know, two hours late, but you're on a flight? So then you land in another country and you can't use a credit card because it's been blocked by the credit card company because yeah. you haven't paid your bill. What if, you know, um, your, your medical data is out there in the world and insurance companies can use that to raise your premiums? Mm -hmm. And that could be anything. Like, you know, you go to the doctor with a sore knee and they're like, oh, shit, you know, let's put up their premiums for physio because, oh, obviously, you know, they're going to need it soon. So, you know, I'm being a bit negative there and no, I don't, I don't really like good to take... real-world applications of what might happen. Yeah. Um, I, I don't like to go down negative paths, yeah. but I think it's just important for people to start thinking about, like I said before, both the pros and the cons. Yeah. There's some wonderful things that can be done with personal and metadata. Yep. Um, but there's also some frightening things. And at the end of the day, I just think you should be able to own and control your own data. Mm. You should have full control over it. Um, no one else should be manipulating or exploiting that for or against you. It should be all within your hot little digital wallet. 100%. <laughs> We're going to have to wrap up shortly. I think we could keep talking for ages. I, I know, just, right? It's just funny. I was reading your um, recap of January and I noticed that um, you met Chris Weir. Um, in, yeah. Uh, so, like, I work, we do a lot of work with him. Very small world, right? <laughs> so, Chris yeah. has actually been coming over and visiting us in the Philippines. Yeah. Um, so we have a team of six over there, which we're growing quite aggressively now. Yeah. Um, and the exec team has relocated to be there on the ground, which is an amazing adventure. Yeah. Um, but Chris uh, actually reached out and he said, I was looking at outsourcing to the Philippines too. Mm. Who do you guys use? We go through a company called CloudStuff. They're incredible. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Chris has just hired his first CloudStuff mm. team member. They've been hanging out with us as well. And uh, yeah, he comes over and hangs out for drinks all the time. So awesome. maybe you should come too. I will definitely be talking to you about cloud stuff. Yeah, small, very small world. I was literally talking to him before and I read that. And I was like, oh, wow, it's a crazy, crazy small world we live in. It is, it is. <laughs> um, so what's ahead for Intimate uh, for the rest of the year? I know, uh, you, so you just had your first transaction in January, yes. end of January? Yes, yep. I'm super excited to say because um, we finished our token sale in June last year. Yep. We've been heads down, bums up for the last uh, five or six months just building. Mm. Last week, we uh, soft launched our beta payment gateway awesome. uh, in Seattle at the Women in Blockchain event. Very exciting. Yes. Um, so we have processed our first consumer transactions now in both the US and Australia. Okay. People have been buying um, Smile Makers pleasure massages. Yeah, I checked out the, the website. Yeah, with either um, Intimate Tokens or ETH. I've actually got a little bag of them here. I'm, yeah, I'm cool. Just, holding up my vibrators very nice um <laughs> but yeah you can actually go on you can um test out the beta gateway yourself if you want to mm. it's uh, just crypto store. okay crypto store, and we'll chuck that in the show notes as well yeah yeah so um please go and check it out we'd love to hear people's feedback <clears throat> once the soft launch campaign is done we'll be rolling out to all our other partners across the world we've currently got more than 45 across every single segment of adult um, from escorting and porn and cams through to sex education health and therapy wellness um, Japanese love hotels adult gaming uh, the whole kit and caboodle pretty much anything you could think of <laughs> just quickly on like do you, do you see the sort of stigma because because every, everybody uses adult services everybody's looking at porn every not me yeah sure no. <laughs> and then you know so it's 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 this weird, it's this weird morality play where people sort of go, yep, yep, yep. Oh no, 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 no. Did you see that lesson? And is there anywhere in the world that, because I know you travel a lot, that you can see sort of, I suppose, a more sort of open attitude? Is Europe, for example? Or 
Yeah, Europe's pretty open. Yeah. I don't know. I think it comes down to the individual. Yeah. Like everywhere I go, I find people who are extremely out and open and other people who are not. Um, I guess I was having a chat to my friend, uh, Wesley Woods, who's okay. a very famous porn star and camp performer, mm. um, gay performer in LA. Um, and he's very out and proud. Everyone knows him, loves him. <laughs> he's a big superstar. Um, but late last year, he was bashed in LA yeah, when he was right. walking home from a party. Shit. Yeah, and it was a really, really scary um, experience for him. And I think also humbled him, um, which he said, you know, it just made me think about a lot of people in my community that that don't want to come out about their identity. Yeah, yeah and, that sucks. And this is why. Mm. So um, whether people, you know, how they feel within themselves or how they respond to this industry or their own sexuality, there's a pervasive stigma that still exists. And yeah. unless we can kind of reduce the barriers to participation in the industry and normalize this space yeah. it's going to persist well hopefully we can start doing that and i think some yeah. of the technology that, that you're working on is, is going to help to do that hopefully so looking forward to see where it goes thank you me too thanks so much for the chat <laughs> glad we finally got to do it yeah finally <laughs> awesome cheers <laughs> cheers guys thanks so much for listening did you enjoy that nick i did very much Thanks again to George and the whole Pause crew for having us out to facilitate some of these chats. Um, it, was, it was great for me to be able to sit down with some really world-class speakers mm. and, and get some of these insights while Nick was out there actually listening to the talks. Yeah, I went to quite a few of those talks. They were all awesome. If you want to hear more about the event, um, you can head to pausefest.com.au or find Pausefest on every social media mm. out there, I assume. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And uh, if you want to hear more of these podcasts, you can find us at Digital Noir, um, on Facebook, Instagram, or digitalnoir.com.au. 